welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and as always, it is my great pleasure to be here with all of you studying God's Word today. I mean, in this world we are in today, do you not feel like you wake up in a new episode of The Twilight Zone? Every single day, it's something different. It's scary, or it's sad, or it's just something you have to laugh at sometimes. There's so much information that you can't trust, but you know what, we've got this. We have a leg up on this game. We have this word, and God's word is always accurate, and it's always relevant, and when you wake up in that new episode of The Twilight Zone, you can look at God's word and be completely at peace with what's going on. You know, this week, we looked at chapters seven and eight in Hebrews, And I have to agree with almost everybody I've talked to, this was kind of hard. It's a little bit hard. But do you know, this portion of Hebrews is actually a part of a larger section. It starts here in chapter seven. It goes all the way to about the middle part of chapter 10. Many theologians have called it the expository because it explains Hebrews in depth. It explains those last six chapters where he was introducing these ideas to these Jewish believers, and he goes into depth as he does it. And he does this because these Jewish, early Jewish believers didn't understand letting go of that Levitical priesthood and grasping onto Jesus as their new high priest, once and for all high priest. But see, for us, it's equally as important because I don't know if you're like me, I never had a high priest in my life. And, and honestly, when I heard Jesus is your high priest years ago, I was like, what are you even talking about? He's my high priest. I didn't know the role of a high priest. So it's important for us as well today, it's relevant that we know Jesus as our superior high priest. It's another layer of Jesus that just makes you fall in love with him. So to do this, the author first introduced Uh, Melchizedek, and he does it back in chapter five, six, where he records this. He says, as he also says in another place. Now, that other place happens to be Psalms 110.4. And in Psalm 110.4, he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That was your first hint that the priesthood of Jesus is completely different than the Levitical priesthood. Now, that's what we pick up today. We're gonna dive into who this mysterious man of God really is, Melchizedek. But what we are not gonna dive into is all the theories about who he actually is, his his identity. Because there are as many theories as there are people in this room. Some of them are really crazy. But I'm gonna give you the top three right now. And I guarantee you by the end of this, you'll have your own thoughts on Melchizedek. First of all, the one that I think is way out there, is that he's, he is a pagan Canaanite priest. There are a host of reasons I don't believe that, okay? Just because of what we read in Hebrews. Secondly, people believe that he might be the pre-incarnate Christ. That isn't as popular today as it used to be among biblical scholars. Now, the last theory, which by the way is the one that I, after studying this guy for months and months, have decided to hang my hat on, and that is that Melchizedek was a human historical king priest who worshiped Yahweh, the God of Abraham. 
That's who I think he is. And if you haven't already done so, I want you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. I want you to follow along as we begin reading verse 1 through 3, which, by the way, is where you find all the information out about this guy. I'm going to back up, though, first. I want to read the last two of the, the previous chapter in chapter, uh, chapter 6, 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that it enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest, high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Okay, so this author proceeds to jump right in with both feet at the very beginning of chapter seven. He gives you everything he knows in three verses about Melchizedek. Everything you're able to find, basically, in the Bible about Melchizedek. He happens to be one of the most intriguing characters in the Bible, but yet he's only mentioned in three books of the Bible. I think it's so interesting. I learned this, not only is his name hard to spell, it's hard to say, but not only that, he's hard to find in the Bible. Because every time I kept trying to take you out of Hebrews to find information about him, they brought me back to Hebrews. That's all there was. It was just the circle I kept going around in. He's only mentioned, like I said, in three books of the Bible. We see him in Genesis, Psalms, and Hebrews. That's it. Which leads us to another fact. All of that information is found in the New Testament. There's more in the New Testament about this Old Testament character. He's first mentioned in Genesis 14, 18. We see him again in Psalm 110.4, just a brief mention. And the bulk of that information is right here, what we're studying today. Now, to just give you a little perspective, Melchizedek's name is only mentioned 10 times in the entire scriptures. Now, if you compare that to Vanita, yeah, that 10's a lot. <laughs> but when you compare that to Moses, he gets 852 mentions in the Bible. David, 971 mentions in the Bible. And then there's this little-known, obscure military leader. He served under David. His name's Joab. Oh, yeah, you know Joab, right? 129 mentions. Melchizedek, 10. 10. Now, I say that all to, to, to let you know that what we do get about Melchizedek in the Bible is very little, but it speaks volume about who he is. Now, we look back at him in Genesis 14, 18. That's the first time we see him on the scene and he's meeting with Abraham, which by the way, needs to be addressed. It is way before Moses, way before Moses hits the scene and the Levitical priesthood is even established. I'm talking 400 years before or more. In fact, it's so far back in biblical history that we see Melchizedek, it's before Abraham's name is changed from Abram to Abraham. That is way, way back in biblical history. And right there in the middle of Genesis 14, plopped right in the middle of there is this mysterious man, Melchizedek. 
Let's look at that on your verse sheet, Genesis 14, 17 through 20. It says, after his return from the defeat of Cater Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. That's the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be God Abraham or Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's all we know about him until we get to Hebrews 7. Now, I'm sure all of you have seen movies where foreshadowing is a part of that movie, right? I'm pretty sure it's almost in every movie we see. I may just not see it all the time. It's probably in every book you've ever read as well. But the one movie that sticks out to me happens to be one of my childhood favorites. It's, It's a movie that you either like or you dislike, but it's The Wizard of Oz. And I can just see by your expression on your face who is in which camp like or dislike, but for me, it was one of my childhood favorites, and I would say that because maybe not so much the movie, but I have such fond memories of watching that movie with my family, and I felt like we had a lot in common with this, these people, because I grew up in Kansas, right in the middle of central Kansas, Tornado Alley, and our little town of 350 people could have been Tornado Main Street, We had tornadoes all the time. And I kind of like Dorothy. I grew up on the edge of town in a little farm, had a little farm, and I went everywhere on my bicycle, and my little dog followed me everywhere. I and Dorothy were basically the same. I had so much in common with her, so we connected on this different level than anybody else could. But every April, in the height of tornado season, for some reason, this movie would always be on TV. I look back and I think, what were they thinking? But you know what? Even crazier to me and made less sense to me is my parents wanted us to watch that movie in the height of tornado season. Okay, so like being shuffled out of your bed in the middle of the night in your footed pajamas, down these old stairs into a disgusting, creepy basement wasn't quite scary enough. Now we had the thought that we could possibly be swept away by this tornado and plopped down in some weird land where there were odd characters and witches and flying monkeys. I mean, what were they even thinking? But it was such a fabulous night to me because my dad cooked dinner. There was always breakfast and we would get it on these metal TV trays and we'd plop right down in front, of the t- in front of the TV. We never got to do this, except in April. And we watched that movie together. And it was glorious. And if any of you remember this movie at all, you remember that every character that you see in the black and white part of it, well, they show up as a different character when Dorothy gets to Oz. Now I have to make a little confession. It took me a couple years to figure that out. But I was young. I started watching this when I was like five. Some people like Deb Haygood tells me it took her till adulthood to figure that out. I'm like, really? It's pretty obvious when you look at it. But one of those characters was that little obscure dude who shows up in the very early part, kind of plopped right in the middle of the black and white portion. It's Dorothy has this chance encounter with this for lack of a better word, a carnival worker, or something like that, where he's out telling fortunes, phony fortunes. He's a scam artist. 
Remember him? And she runs across him and the wind's starting to kick up and there's little wagons there. Well, then you never see him again until way later in the movie and guess who he is? Yeah, he's the man behind the curtain. He's the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. That guy. I mean, this movie alone taught me you never overlook a character in anything. Even if they're obscure and they're incidental, it doesn't seem like they even fit in there. They could be a major crucial part of the plot of the movie. And I think that is what we see with Melchizedek. Because see, he shows up early on. He's mentioned back in Genesis. He's just mentioned once or so, every so often. And then we get this crucial information about Melchizedek right here in Hebrews 7, where we get his identity and most importantly, what his identity means as it points us to Jesus. The most important part of Melchizedek. What I don't want you to do is stumble over Melchizedek's character, who he is, and miss Jesus. Because I think that's the whole purpose of having Melchizedek even put into Genesis. I think God knew these Jewish believers were going to have a hard time letting go of those old ways and grasping on to Jesus as their high priest. And he was going to need this man to explain the differences for him. Now, the first two facts we learned in these three verses was that he's the king of Salem. Now, Salem was an ancient city, later became known as Jerusalem. We all know that one. And on a side note, the name Salem means peace, but it also means full, complete, safe, whole, all a part of peace, of course. And then we learned that he was priest of the most high God. Now, these two facts listed together are pretty important. They may seem not that big of a deal to all of us, but to these early Jewish believers, for them to have it listed as king of Salem, priest of the God most high, he was a king and priest, this would have meant something to them. See, the Old Testament economy kept the throne and the altar for the most part separate. And so Melchizedek, it says, was a king and a priest. And that was a privilege they knew had never been given to Aaron, who was the head of the Levitical priesthood. This was not a common thing. This was not the norm. And the author of Hebrews doesn't just call him the priest. He could be any kind of priest. What does he refer to him as? Priest of the most high God. That statement alone for them pointed to the legitimacy of Melchizedek's ministry because he worshiped Yahweh, the God of Abraham. The same God that Abraham and all the Jewish people would have worshiped. Now that chance encounter between Abraham and Melchizedek is recorded back in Genesis 14, 17 through 20. And in that, he not only met with Abraham, there was more to that, right? It says he blessed Abraham with bread and wine. And then it goes on to say that Abraham offered Melchizedek a 10% a tithe of his spoils of war. This would have also caught their attention. I mean, first of all, it's Abraham. Who doesn't know it? We know Abraham. And if we know Abraham, I can guarantee you these Jewish believers knew Abraham. He's the patriarch of the Jewish faith. He's the patriarch of all the Jewish people. And they not only knew of him, they knew a lot about him. And they would have been highly impressed that Melchizedek even met with Abraham and it says 
they would and they would have been blessed that he would have been it would have impressed on them that he blessed Abraham and he received tithes from Abraham. See, in biblical history, they knew this. It was very common for people to give a tithe to someone who was over them, who was greater, more superior to them, like a priest or a king. So they would give that tithe to them. Now, it wasn't done to honor the priest. It was done, but rather to honor God through the priest. He was their mediator and he would those tithes went from them to God. So as a role as a high priest, Melchizedek, he actually had that authority to collect those tithes from Abraham. But it's interesting to me though, this obscure guy mentioned is made, is, is made is, all this is mentioned about a priest that came on the scene centuries before the Mosaic law even happened. He's just plopped right there in the middle before the Levitical priest was even established. He's just this mysterious man of God. You know, next we learn this. He says he's a, his name means righteousness. Now, when you combine that with what I told you earlier about Salem, then we know this. Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and a king of peace. He was both. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? I think I know somebody else just like that. And lastly, we're told that Melchizedek has no recorded genealogy. It's, it's like his priesthood, it, it, so his priesthood resembles the eternal priesthood of Jesus. It's like it was eternal, Jesus is, is eternal. See, the Levitical priesthood was hereditary, but Melchizedek's was not. Apparently, his order of priesthood was not based on hereditary like the Levites were. His parents and his genealogy are not recorded, and it's not because he didn't have parents or he didn't have genealogy. It's because it was irrelevant to his priesthood. It didn't matter. It wasn't based on who he was or where he came from. And because of this and all these other facts we learn about him, he tells us, the author of Hebrews says, he resembles Jesus. He resembles Jesus. Now, the King James Bible, it uses a phrase made, uses a phrase, phrase made like the Son of God, which literally means made to be like the Son of God. And it's interesting to know that the word like that they translate that from is only used one time in the New Testament, and it's right there in the King James Version, talking about Melchizedek being like the Son of God. So his priesthood is a type or a representation of the priesthood of Jesus. You know, there's a lot of that. If you've studied the Old Testament, you understand. There's so much of the Old Testament that foreshadows the New Testament. There's so many times that we're studying something and we see that whatever we're discussing in the Old Testament, it's fulfilled in the person and the ministry of Christ. It resembles that. So they say that Melchizedek was a type of Christ, typical to Christ. Now, this is not the only time we see this. It's over and over in scripture. If you look at John 3 on your verse sheet, it says, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying the serpent in the wilderness is in some way, in some sense, typical of his crucifixion. It's foreshadowing it. Romans 5.14, Paul mentions Adam as a type of Jesus who was to come. It's also on your verse sheet. It says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, 
who was a type of the one who was to come. So you see, we see this used over and over. So it makes sense that Melchizedek would resemble Jesus. He was a type of Christ. Next week, you're gonna begin to study in chapters nine and 10, and you're gonna see that almost every piece of the Old Old Testament sacrifices and the tabernacle, they foreshadowed also the person and ministry of Christ. Now, I think it's no coincidence that there's a lack of detailed biological and genealogical information about Melchizedek. I think God gave us exactly what he thought we needed to know. He knows that we're gonna grab onto that and trying to find out as much as we can and we're gonna focus on Melchizedek. That's not what he wanted. He knew that one day, those early Jewish believers were gonna need a little help understanding Jesus as their high priest. And he also knew that all of us who had never had the ro- a high priest in our life, we had no idea what the role of a high priest was that we would also need to understand the superiority of Jesus as our high priest. And I think that's why Melchizedek is dropped into Genesis. It's for all of us. Let's pick up verse four. I'm gonna read to verse nine. And this is where we're gonna find out about how this priesthood of this mysterious man compares to the Levitical priesthood. It says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these who are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal man, but in the other case, by one of whom it testifies that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Okay, I am fully aware those are hard verses. What are they even saying here? I mean, I read those a zillion times going, okay, you need to talk to me because this is hard stuff. I get it. But these verses are going on to further explain that, that encounter that he had where Melchizedek, they're trying to explain Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And he tries to do it. He's trying to drive it home, but I kind of feel like he goes a roundabout way to get there. But it harkens back to that incident that we read about in verses one and two, where Abraham acknowledges him by giving him a tithe and then receives the blessing from him. Now, verse seven says this, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. It's like he's saying, okay, we're not even gonna argue that point. We already know this. So you understand that part. And because we know that, we know that Abraham's tithe also validated Melchizedek's superiority to the future Levitical priests. Wait, what? Wait, well, we're talking about Abraham. The Levitical priests weren't even here yet. Then he proceeds to explain that through Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek, it's as though the whole tribe of Levi made this tithe to Melchizedek as well. Okay, see, if we, if we know the fact that the Jewish people have this thing that they strongly believe in, it's called racial solidarity. Now, this, these terms have taken on such different meanings nowadays, but to the Jewish people, it means that something that happened to their ancestors actually happened to them as well. 
They're that tied together. So that they're saying that when their patriarch, Abraham, acknowledged the greatness of Melchizedek, Aaron and the whole tribe of Levi were also involved in that. Because as it said, they were in the loins of Abraham. It's like they're saying they were a twinkle in Abraham's eye. They were there in a sense. In a sense, as descendants of Abraham, the Levites also participated in paying tithes to Melchizedek. So simply put, Melchizedek superior to Abraham. And then because the Levites are inside of Abraham, Therefore, Melchizedek, Melchizedek is even greater than the Levitical priests. Is it clear as mud? I'm trying. These words are really long and hard to say. But yes, I think we understand they're trying to get the point that he replaces, he's, he's superior and Jesus resembles him. And that's what we need to keep our eye on. Let's keep moving and find out how Melchizedek compares to Jesus, which by the way, is I think the most important part. I'm gonna pick up in verse 11 and read to verse 17. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under, under it, the people received the law, what further need would have been made for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one had ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. In connection with that, tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, verse 11 tries to clear up why we need a new priesthood. Why was it even needed? It states the Levitical priesthood was unable to perfect. And the Old Testament priests would, could not by their repetitive offerings and sacrifices, they were never able to make anybody perfect by that. That means they weren't able to complete the work that God, the work of God in the hearts of the worshipers. They couldn't drive, the, drive it home. They could only continually make atonement for it. The Mosaic system of divine law was never meant to be an, imp, an impermanent system. Now, I'm not saying it had no purpose. It had great purpose. And that purpose was is that it served as a teacher to prepare the way for Jesus, the coming Messiah. Look at Galatians 3.19 on your verse sheet. It says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith." And then look at Galatians 4 on there. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. See, if I try to simplify this, what he's trying to say is that um, God gave Moses the law. 
and, and he gave it so that people would know what sin was. It's not like sin was new. Sin started way back in the garden. We know that. But God defined it. He gave it a definition. So just like sin was defined, it was kind of a new concept for them, for early man. So also was the truth that blood had to be sacrificed. Blood had to be given. Someone had to die to pay for these sins. That is where the Levitical priesthood with its repetitive offerings and sacrifices came into the picture. See, it was all put in place to introduce this truth that shedding blood for sin or dying for sin was necessary. And, and it all became part of what they knew after it was done for so many years that when Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, he bled and died on the cross, they were better able to recognize him as the Messiah. And that with that sacrifice, we're introduced to our new high priest, Jesus. Jesus, he was our high priest. He, he not only bled and died for our sins, he conquered death. That's something that a high priest had never been able to do, ever. And God used Melchizedek as sort of a stepping stone to take these early Jewish believers and all of us from an understanding of the Levitical priesthood and stepped right over and found Jesus, their new perfect high priest. The next couple of verses address that like Melchizedek, Jesus arose from a priestly order other than the Levitical priesthood. And because of this, he stood outside the legal lineage of a priest under the old covenant. And yet it says he was a priest of the most high God. Look at Matthew 2, 6 on your verse sheet. It says, oh, you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who, sh who will shepherd my people of Israel. They're talking about Jesus here. He also came from a different lineage. He came from the line of Judah, completely outside the legal lineage for the Levitical priesthood. And it says, like Melchizedek, no one in Jesus Jesus' lineage had ever served at the altar. That was another way Melchizedek resembled Jesus. This had to be a major sticking point for these early Jewish believers. You know, verse 14, 15 describes Jesus as another priest that arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. The Levitical priests were made priests by the authority of a temporary and imperfect law, but Jesus... He was made a priest by declaration of God. Totally different. And because he's the eternal son of God, he lives the power of an endless life. He's indestructible. So where Melchizedek's priesthood only appeared to have no end, Jesus' priesthood actually has no end. He's our high priest forever. Forever. Follow along. I'm going to read the last few verses of this chapter. It's picking up at verse 18. It says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this was... May, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like these high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See, not only was a better priest introduced through Jesus, but verse 19 says we have a better hope introduced. And because of the redemptive work that Jesus did, we're able to do something that is very key to our Christian faith. We're able to draw near to God. I think we forget how big a deal that really is. Do you understand that those living under the Levitical system, priesthood, they never were able to do that. In fact, they were quite literally kept outside of the presence of God. Only the high priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies. They were never able to draw near to God. That is a huge thing for us. Another glaring difference we see is that is found in verse 20 and 21. It's unlike the Levitical priest. Jesus was made a priest with an oath from the Lord. That didn't happen with the Levites. Basically, he's saying here that the Lord swore this oath and he can't, he's not gonna change it. He's not changing his mind. You can take this to the bank. And in that same quote, which is found in Psalm also, Psalm 110.4, we see another way Jesus' priesthood differs from the Levitical priesthood. It says, unlike the Levitical priests, Jesus' priesthood is permanent and eternal. It's permanent, it doesn't change, it can't change. And it goes on forever. And then we get the best news ever. I think it's the best news in all of this. He lives eternally to intercede for us. That is great news. See, to make intercession means to petition on someone's behalf. So Jesus, our high priest, petitions on our behalf before God the Father. He has God's ear. He's right there. It's like when you call and you're talking to someone, you say, I need to speak to the supervisor. He's right there. You wait on hold for an hour to get a supervisor, he just hands you right to God. You're right there. He's interceding for you all the time. Now, I want to finish up uh, reading chapter 8 in its entirety. And uh, this chapter kind of sets the, sets the stage for next week when you start diving into chapter nine and 10 that Deb will talk to you about. But let's start at verse one. It says, now the point in what we're saying is this. It's kind of like saying, what I'm trying to say is, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, 
he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ was, has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as a covenant. He mediates it is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds with fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on, that, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will, sh I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall, know all, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more." And he ends it by saying, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, the author of Hebrews opens up this chapter by saying, what I'm trying to say is, is that we have a high priest in Jesus that sits at the right hand of God the Father and he ministers in the true tabernacle made by God, not by man. Now, when he says the term true tabernacle, he's not referring to the fact that, or saying that the uh, Old Testament tabernacle was false or counterfeit or anything like that. What he's trying to say is he's speaking about the reality that stands behind the copy or, or the representation of the Old Testament tabernacle. See, it's like when you have a photograph of your family and you look at that photograph it's not your flesh and blood family, it's a representation of your flesh and blood family. So that's like the Old Testament tabernacle is like a photograph of the true tabernacle. It's, it's a representation of the heavenly tabernacle. And he goes on to say that whereas the Levites set up the Old Testament tabernacle, the Lord himself pitched the tent for the new one, the one found in heaven. And the heading on the chapter eight, it says this, Jesus, high priest of a better covenant. I mean, it's kind of all we need to know about him. Jesus, a high priest of a better covenant. And verses one through five, give us those two reasons that new covenant is greater than the Old Testament, Old Testament covenant. It's ministered by a superior high priest and it's ministered in a superior place in heaven. First Timothy 2, 5 tells us this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. It's what a high priest does. And the author of Hebrews says he's better than the Old Testament priests because his covenant is based on better promises. Now, we find all those better promises listed in um, the middle part of that chapter, verses 8 through 12. Those are directly out of Jeremiah 11. It's a direct quote from Jeremiah, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31. And the, the better promises are specifically found right there in 10 through 12. 
says he promises to put his laws in our minds and he's gonna write them on our hearts. See, it's no longer just gonna be an external thing where you have to continually do stuff. It's gonna be written inside. It's gonna be inside you. He promises to have a firm relationship with you. That's what he desires. You get to draw near to him. It says he promises that we'll have knowledge of who he is. And that knowledge is gonna, is gonna come to us from his own words when the Holy Spirit enables us to study his word and learn more about him. He gives us the Holy Spirit to enlighten us. And then it said he promises to forgive our sins and he's gonna remember them no more. They're gonna be as far as the east is from the west. Now the author of Hebrews ends here with saying that though the priesthood and the sacrificial systems that were still being used when he wrote this to the Hebrews, it, it actually he's telling them the introduction of this new covenant from Jesus, the Messiah, means that the old covenant is starting to grow old and it's gonna soon pass away. It's gonna go away, it's gonna disappear. And on a side note, it does. It really does. It disappears in quite a dramatic, actually violent way. In 70 AD, a short time after this, a Roman armies destroy the temple and they put an end to all the Jewish sacrifices. So this actually does come true. Now, Hebrews 7, 25 through 28 tells us that our high priest is holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's separate from sin, he says he's exalted in the heavens, he's dealt with sin once and for all, he's eternal. He says he sits at the right hand of God and he's there interceding for us. Ladies, we truly do have a high priest who is greater than all others. He outshines them all. His name is Jesus, and he lives to intercede for each one of you. Those words should be like sweet music to your ears. Even when you're living in the twilight zone, we have this hope to hold on to. Trust him to strengthen you, because you know what? He knows your weaknesses better than anybody, because he's been one of us. Look at Hebrews 4.15 on your verse sheet. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of help, or to help in time of need. See, Jesus wrapped himself in skin. He came to earth to live like us so he would know exactly what we were up against living in this world. And he did it without sin. See, I believe he alone is the only one who can give us the strength we need to fight our day in and day out battles because he's fought those battles. Also trust him to provide for your needs. I mean, remind you, he's sitting at the right hand of God and he's there interceding for you. He has the bat phone to, G to God. Like he can go, hey, this is what she needs today. So trust him to provide for your needs, not just all your wants. There's a big difference here. He knows what we need every single day. And lastly, I want you to trust him to equip you as you grow in righteousness. And I, I believe you're doing that because I see you here studying God's word. 
And, and he, when you do that and you purposely study his righteousness and you study and, and grow in righteousness, you become what God made you to be. It's that sweet spot where you find peace because you know you're doing exactly and you're exactly who God wanted you to be. And he equips you with his word to do that. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 on your verse sheet. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You're doing exactly what you need to do to grow in righteousness. Now, I'm gonna end here today with one of my favorite quotes from Charles Wesley. Why don't you just close things up and just listen to this because I think it's such a beautiful picture of Jesus for us and what he's done for us. It says this, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and I claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Please pray with me. Father God, we love your word, and we love that even when we study some mysterious man way back in the Old Testament, you have so many truths to teach us. Father, I pray that neither, none of us leave here today without a truth that you have planted in our hearts, and Lord, that we would Dive into your word each day and look for more truth day in and day out. Father, I pray that we would see your son, Jesus, as our high priest, and we would live confident and victorious knowing he's interceding for us at your your throne. We love you, we love your son, and we love your word. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.